church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, church. My name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor here at Lake Forest Westlake. And if this is your first time, uh, maybe you came with a friend or a family member, we are so honored that you've chosen to spend a Sunday morning with us, especially when it is as beautiful outside as it is. Uh, I'm lucky I'm on the payroll here. Otherwise, I'd be playing hooky today. Um, We're so thrilled you're here with us. We are uh, doing something different today. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But we are in a series called Solas. Uh, It is in honor of the, or celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. What is the Reformation? Well, the Reformation is, quite honestly, probably the most significant renewal, reform movement in the history of the church in 2,000 years. 500 years ago, men and women uh, rediscovered the scriptures as the authority for their faith, and that led to all kinds of changes in the life of the church, and what it meant to really subscribe to this faith we call Christianity. There were five themes that emerged from that time, and those are called the five solas. Now, sola is just the Latin word for alone. Uh, you might kind of know that. Uh, I, was, I asked the staff if that meant I got to sing a solo during each Sunday. They said, no, we don't want you to be up there alone. Uh, they figured y'all would leave if I started singing. But uh, what are the five solas? They, these are they. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone and glory to God alone. Each of these was an answer to a question that they had at that time. And today we're going to talk about the fourth of the solas, Christ alone. And it's the answer to a question that maybe you have asked before or maybe you've heard someone ask, which is, what is the way to God? What is the way to God? What is the pathway to God? And what the reformers said was that Uh, Christ alone is the path to God. Now, uh, this comes from a conversation that Jesus had. His buddy John records it in his gospel. It's a conversation Jesus had with his group of closest followers just days before his death. Uh, They were gathered together, and Jesus said, Listen, guys, I'm going to have to leave. I need to go to the Father, to God, to prepare a place for you. And eventually I'm going to come and bring you with me. And then... Thomas, maybe you've heard of Thomas before. He had a nickname that was sort of unfortunate. It was Doubting Thomas. Uh, Thomas speaks up for the bunch and says, "Uh, Jesus, I've got a question. Um, How will we know the way? How will we know the way? And then Jesus said these words that have been resounding throughout the centuries. He said this, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's a pretty provocative statement, isn't it? That, that seems to even almost be an offensive statement, especially if you are here and you're a person who would say, Aaron, I'm not sure what I think about Christianity. Well, we wanted to wrestle with this question and this claim that Jesus makes of being the only way because, uh, quite honestly, it's perhaps one of the most important questions of our day. Uh, the 21st century has been defined by religious conflict uh, around the globe. And in an effort to pursue peace, Sometimes people will propose a sort of a can't-we-all-just-get-along approach. Don't all religions actually just say the same thing is the kind of thinking here. And maybe that's something you believe, or maybe that's something someone you know believes. And while an end to violence and the pursuit of peace are absolutely good and right and just things, 
Is it really true that all religions are simply saying the same thing? Do all paths lead to the top of the same mountain? Uh, That's the question we're going to consider today. It's actually the question the Reformers were asking that led to that answer. We're going to consider that. Uh, We decided we wanted to bring in someone to help us wrestle with that question, someone who is wrestling with this question on college campuses every week uh, around the nation. Uh, And you guys are going to be in for a huge treat today. It's a huge topic, very important question. So we brought in a guy who is an author, wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. I love that title. He's also a nationally broadcast radio and television host president of crossexamine.org and teaches on apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And I asked this, and I think he's either lying to me or at least confirming it, uh, that he is a Carolina Panthers fan. So uh, would you help me, uh, put your hands together, help me welcome to the stage Dr. Frank Turret. Morning, everyone. When the Panthers stand for the national anthem, I'm behind. <laughs> well, we uh, we uh, I like to pick on the Cowboys fans here quite a bit, so they they oh, know. Oh, Cowboy uh, fans I'm, are here. Well, hey, yes. whenever the Cowboys win, it's living proof that Satan is alive and well. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, um, you guys are in. You guys are in for a treat today, Frank. Uh, Frank and I. Um, Got, well, we met and talk, we talked years ago, but we had a yeah. conversation just a couple months ago about this event, mm-hmm. and uh, we did this conversation in the first service. And, and what I think, I just want to set you all up, what, what you're going to hear today is uh, someone who is deeply convicted and passionate about the pursuit of truth. And uh, we're a church for Christians, skeptics, and explorers, and we all want to be about pursuing truth. And uh, that's kind of what we're in for today. Frank? We started with this question. I've got my questions here, so I'm going to keep us on track. Uh, tell us, in your experience, going around college campuses, other places where you speak and debate, uh, why do you think this question, the question of Jesus being the way to the Father, uh, why do you think that's such a pertinent or hot topic? On well, for world? many, I think it's because they, it sounds immoral. Like, well, how could there just be one way? There's so many people who haven't heard of Jesus. Maybe we'll get to that question later. But it seems... Just why would God seemingly condemn large groups of people to hell if Jesus is the only way? It kind of seems, some might say, it sounds arrogant that there's only one way. The other thing that I think people are frustrated with is because so many people, it almost seems, want to create their own reality here uh, in our culture today. They want to just do their own thing, and they don't want anybody, including God, telling them how they're going to do it. So they just want to say, whatever I do is fine, God will approve of me if he does exist, so I just want to have my, I want to live my own life the way I want to live it, and uh, this narrow way that Jesus talks about um, is too narrow for me. So, I think those are the two main reasons. It seems immoral, and people just want to do things their own way. Not really interested in... Right. Yeah. Well, we... We talked, you know, and you heard me read from these scriptures, uh, just or, or quote sure. from the scriptures earlier, yeah. John's gospel, where Jesus seems to be saying, uh, look, there's no other way to mm-hmm. God except through me. Mm-hmm. Is that what Jesus really taught? Is that what the apostles, the people who did life with Jesus and later gave us the scriptures, is that what they taught? Yeah, they did. Jesus said it. Uh, John said it when he said that if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Uh, also... Uh, Paul says that if there's any other gospel out there in Galatians chapter 1, uh, let the people who are purporting to give this gospel be accursed. He said there's, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, Ephesians 2. 
of course, Peter said there's uh, only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Just every apostle says the same thing. And by the way, if you look at the entire scope of the entire Bible, you realize if you had to sum it up in one word, what's the theme? The theme of the entire Bible is redemption. You have paradise lost in Genesis, paradise regained in Revelation. Everything else in between is the story of redemption. Where God sees that his creatures have fallen, they've sinned, and he initiates a rescue program where the entire Old Testament talks about tracing one bloodline of the Messiah to the point where Jesus actually becomes the Messiah by coming to earth. And that's what the entire story of Christianity is about, that God literally comes, adds human flesh over his deity, lives the perfect life in our place, and then by trusting in him, you can have your moral transgressions forgiven, and you can be given his righteousness. That's the amazing thing about Christianity. If it's true, you're not only forgiven for what you've done, but Mm. you're given what somebody else has done. Jesus, you're given his righteousness. So... Christianity makes no sense if there's many other ways to God. In fact, Paul even says, look, if righteousness could be achieved by going through the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would God send his only son to die a brutal death if you could get to God any other way? He wouldn't. Mm. Well, Frank, as we were talking, that stirred some questions for me uh, uh, about other religions and, mm-hmm. and what they believe, right? Because I remember one of the interesting things for me when I was younger, uh, I did not grow up in the Christian faith. Uh, I'm the only Christian in my family. Uh, I actually came to faith in my late teen years uh, wrestling philosophically with these questions mm-hmm. and looking at other religions. And it seems to me that, that whether you're talking about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, uh, Sikhism, uh, secular humanism, all of these different worldviews agree on one thing. They, they all seem to agree that there's a problem. Yeah. Even Christianity would agree right. there's a problem. Right. But how we address that problem or how that problem gets solved, uh, they seem to diverge. That's where they, yeah, they, they do. don't seem to be saying the same thing. Yeah, in fact, the, most other world relig- all other world religions are teaching you that you've got to do this and do that and do this to work your way to God. Whereas Christianity, God works his way to you. He does everything for you. All other religions are do this, do that, do this. Christianity, it's done. He does it all. So the biggest difference between other world religions and Christianity is other world religions are man-centered where Christianity is God-centered. God does all the work. You just trust in him. He's your savior. Hmm. Good. So, so we've talked about this. We, this sort of leads to my next question. Um, I've heard, often heard people say that uh, all roads lead to the same mountaintop. I mentioned that yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then the other one, which is, uh, I've got to get it right, that, that uh, God is like an elephant and there are a bunch of blind men and women mm-hmm. and they're each describing a different part of the elephant. I'm sure right. you've heard both oh, of sure. those. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell, how, how do you think about those? Well, a lot of people say all religions teach basically the same thing. You know, They all teach you how to love one another. First of all, that's not even true, if you think about it. Satanism doesn't teach you how to love one another. Neither do some forms of Islam, obviously. Uh, But they do generally have a moral code, a consistent moral code, you might add, generally. But why is that? Because God has written right and wrong on the hearts of people, and you would expect them to express their moral sentiments in their their religious writings. Uh, But when people tell me, oh yeah, all religions teach basically the same thing, they all teach you how to love one another, I go, yeah, but they only differ on the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and creation. Outside of that, they're exactly alike. No, No. they actually differ on the big issues, 
and they're superficially the same, too often it's taught the other way. Oh, they're essentially the same, they differ on the minor issues. No, it's exactly the opposite. Hmm. Again, all other world religions are dealing with how do you work your way to God where Christianity, he comes to you. Yeah, a key difference. A huge difference. Yeah. All the work is done by God. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do good works, obviously. We do as a result of, of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. But as Martin Luther said, the fruit comes from the tree. The, the, the tree doesn't come from the fruit, huh. right? I mean, if you're saved, so to speak, if you're truly a follower of Christ, you will do good works. There will be fruit coming from your life. But the fruit doesn't give you the tree. The fruit doesn't give you the faith. The faith gives you the fruit. The yeah. good works. Well, and that, uh, that leads right to my next question. It's like we planned um, this. Almost like we did. This is great. So uh, think about that. We've been talking about the Reformation. Yeah. Uh, and what you by the way, by the way, let me say something. I've been to a lot of churches. I've never been to a church that taught the five solas. So you're in a very special church. It's very important that these are taught. And it's amazing um, that I'm just happy you're doing this. So you have a great pastor here teaching the five solas. Here he is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you your 20 bucks later. All right, um, that's it. <laughs> Frank, I, I, I asked this question in the first service a little bit later, but it feels like it might help set the tone right okay. now. And then I'll come back to, to the Reformation. Sure. Um, that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're talking about this, this views of other religions, other worldviews. And, and we have people who, some in this room, who would identify as Christians, others who would say, no, I'm mm -hmm. not there. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the kind of church we are. And we, we welcome that. Good. What are, the, what are the things about a religious or spiritual person in general that you think we can bless or say amen to? What are the parts of that we, that, that we can say, that's right? Well, I think, I think generally that people who are seeking is a good thing. You ought to be seeking. I, I, I was at the University of Maryland a few years back. I do a lot of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentations on college campuses. And I was at the University of Maryland, and after the presentation was over, I was talking to an atheist young man. And he was complaining about the New Testament, but it didn't seem like he knew much about it. So I said, can I ask you a question? Have you ever read the New Testament? And he was stunned because he never had. And here he is complaining about it and complaining about Jesus. And I said, look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your history is. I don't care what culture you were brought up in, what your religious upbringing was. The person, the human being known as Jesus of Nazareth, was, was unquestionably the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. And if you're going to call yourself a seeker of truth, you have to at least read what he allegedly said and did. You might read it and go, I don't think this is true. But you've got to at least read it. You've got to seek out to discover why this guy was the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. And think about this. This Jesus of Nazareth never did anything that we would today consider great. He never led an army. He never led a company. He never wrote a book. He inspired a lot of books. He never traveled more than 200 miles from where he grew up. And yet today he's the center of human history. How did that happen? Because he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. That's how. That's why we're even here. Why, why would there be a place in Denver, North Carolina, 2,000 years later, where people come and sing songs to this guy and then talk about him? Why? You can understand how there could be mosques around. Why? Islam was a military religion. I mean, but why would there be a meek, mild Jesus religion 
if this guy never came out of the grave. It's good. You said that in the first service that uh, when it comes to the guy who can predict, pull off, uh, and pull off his own death and resurrection, I'm going with that guy. That's right. And anybody who rises from the dead, I just believe whatever they say. That's (laughs) right. Well, let's get back to the Reformation. Here's the question I had. You know, last week we talked about faith, grace alone and faith alone. It's the, the Ephesians verse that you just referenced. Yeah. That, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not by works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet Christians would, and, and most world religions would agree that good works are important. Yep. But Christians see them as the result of that grace and faith, not as earning that That's grace right. yeah. and faith. Right? So, so here's, here's, uh, here's a, the real kind of critical question. If Christ alone was the answer to that question, then why is Jesus the only way? Yeah, that's the, it's easy to see that he was taught as the only way, and he even said it. By the way, if somebody says, well, you're arrogant for believing in that, you go, look, I didn't make the claim. Right? He did. I'm just, here's, what he, here's what he claimed. The question is, why is he the only way? Is it an arbitrary claim? No, it's not. And probably it's best demonstrated by illustration. Let's suppose, God forbid, you're out there drinking and driving, and a cop sees you and pulls you over, and he gives you the breathalyzer test, and you're guilty. And in the town you live in, there's very swift justice, so they take you immediately down to the courtroom, and you look up, and the judge is your father, your physical, earthly father. And he looks down at you, and he goes, how do you plead? And you go, guilty. I mean... The evidence is there. You can't get out of it. Now, if he's a just judge, can he just look down at you and then say to the bailiff, hey, this guy or gal, it's my son, my daughter, just let him go. Can he do that if he's going to be just? No, if he's going to be just, he can't do that. That would be corrupt, right? So he looks down at you and says, how do you plead? You go guilty. And you go, okay, guilty. $5,000 fine or you go to jail. And you go, dad. You know I don't have $5,000. I'll tell you what. From now on, however, I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to do all sorts of good works. I'm going to be at church every Sunday. I'm going to feed the poor. I'm going to work at the soup kitchen. I'm going to help old ladies across the street. I'm going to do all the good things that I'm supposed to do. And then your dad looks down at you and goes, are you still drunk? (laughs) Now, even if you could do that, would that change the fact that you're already guilty of drinking and driving? No. You could be perfect from here on out. You still got a problem. So he says, it doesn't matter. Even if you could do that, you're still guilty. So it's $5,000 or you go to jail. And you go, Dad, I don't have $5,000. At that point, he gets up from his bench. He takes off his robe. He comes down to your level. He reaches into his pocket and he takes out $5,000 and he holds it out. What's the only thing you can do to be free? Take it. Doesn't matter how many good works you promise to do. That's the only way you're going to be free is to take it. He pays the fine for you. That's what Jesus does for us. He comes down from heaven. He adds humanity over his deity. He allows the very creatures that sinned against him to torture and kill him as an innocent human being. So his sacrifice could be applied to you. And that's why God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 3.26. It's not an arbitrary claim. The only reason Jesus is claiming to be the only way is because he's the only perfect sacrifice that can allow God to remain just and also be loving enough to allow sinners to go unpunished. He's got to punish somebody, otherwise he's not just. He's corrupt. And he can't be corrupt. He is the very foundation of justice and love. So that's why he's the only way. 
It's not arbitrary. Mm. Now, Frank, as I listen to you describe that, and maybe some of my friends here feel the same, I feel this deep resolve of, yes, I, that's the gospel I know. I, I know that I'm broken. I know that I am saved by grace alone. I know that. And as you describe that, there's a kind of a reassurance in mm-hmm. me. At the same time, when I think about my friends who are not Christians, my Buddhist friends, my agnostic friends, and, uh, my uh, atheist friends, they would, you know, I, and I imagine myself saying that to them. There's this kind of catch. There's this pause in me because, well, it, it feels a little arrogant. Mm, and, yeah. and quite honestly, I, I don't want to be an arrogant person. I don't like arrogant Christians. Uh, do I have to be arrogant in order to claim that truth? No, first of all, again, that's not your truth. It's what, I mean, it's Jesus said it. You're just saying, here's what Jesus said. But arrogance and humbleness are not qualities of truth. They may be qualities of a person. I mean, you could be arrogant and be right and humble and be wrong, right? You could be arrogant. Two plus two is four. Yeah, you're right. You could be so humble and say, it's really three. No, it, you're wrong then. It doesn't, you know, I think it's three. No. So arrogance and humility is not a quality of truth itself. Maybe the quality of the person. You never, of course, want to be arrogant. You just want to say, hey, this is the claim. Let's evaluate the evidence and see if it's really true. And if somebody says that's not true, they're making an exclusive claim as well. They're saying, I'm 100% sure that's not true. Well, that's still an exclusive. All truth is exclusive. Every truth excludes its opposite. It's the law of non-contradiction. If you say Jesus isn't the only way... You're saying everyone who believes it is, is wrong, right? So you can't get away from it. Hence the all roads and the elephant blind men metaphor start to Yeah, the elephant down. blind men doesn't work anyway because how do we know that's an elephant? You, you've got to see it, right, uh-huh. and say it's an elephant. Well, if you take the blindfolds off the people feeling it, you can say, hey, it's an elephant. The parable wouldn't work if you couldn't see that the whole thing was an elephant. Ah, I see. So the whole, it's kind of a self-defeating parable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet so enticing. It's enticing, but you just got to think about it a little bit and be arrogant for a second and say, no, that's wrong. (laughs) Okay, let's get get back to the questions. Um, uh, We've talked about this. Jesus, actually, excuse me, John, the guy that I read from earlier that, quote, tells us the story about Jesus and Thomas. Later in his gospel about Jesus, he says something remarkable that Jesus said, that God the Father, his desire is that everyone would be saved. That his desire is Mm -hmm. that all would be saved. That's his desire. Okay, so if that's God's desire, why are not all people saved? Because a lot of people don't want to be saved. In fact, I was uh, at a, a debate at the University of Michigan with an atheist by the name of Eddie Tabach, who's a Beverly Hills attorney. This was about four or five years ago. And uh, we had an opportunity to question one another. And he, his question to me was this. He said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. Toward the end of her life, somebody offered her the gospel, but she rejected it. Then she died. Is she in hell right now? I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is now. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion or not. But if she didn't accept Christ before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. See, because the assumption behind the question is that everybody wants to go to heaven. That's not true. There's been people running from Jesus their entire lives. What's he going to do in the afterlife? Go, whoa, 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 where are you going? You're with me now. How would that be loving? You go, what's this business about hell, though? Well, I used an illustration. I'll use it with you here. In fact, I asked the ladies at the University of Michigan this question. So, ladies, I'm going to ask you the same question in here. Ladies, have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? 
Some are going, yeah, and he's sitting next to me right now. <laughs> he will not leave me alone. Every time I ask that question, the ladies giggle and the men look at their shoes. Like, Is she looking at me right now? Well, suppose this man pursues you. He keeps pursuing you, ladies. He keeps pursuing you, and you get a little tired. You know, he keeps asking you out. You keep going, look, look. You finally get to the point where you say, look, look. I like you, but only as a Ladies, why don't you just stick the knife in and turn it? Every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Gentlemen, if you ever get the dreaded friend rejection, move on. She's not interested. In fact, I have some shocking news for you. She's not, she doesn't even like you as a friend. Okay? Because, am I right, ladies? Come on. If you did like him, you'd be interested. But no. Now, suppose this doesn't deter him. He continues to pursue. He continues to pursue. And he gets to the point where he says, look. I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Can he do that? No. Run, screaming from the building. He can't force you to love him. Love, by definition, must be freely given. That's the only way love can be freely given. Even God can't force someone with free will to love him. That would be a contradiction. So what does he do? Well, let me ask you. If that guy truly did love you, ladies, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Christ. He sends us the Bible. He sends us Aaron. He sends us missionaries. He may even send us a dream or vision. If you're a Muslim in a far-off country that can't get the gospel, I've known several Muslims that have come to faith that way. And if you keep saying, no, 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 then God will give you up to your own desires. He will leave you alone. In fact, that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go our own way. And ultimately, God will give you up. Look, if there is a God, and there is, and there is an afterlife, and there is, there's only two possible destinations. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife, that's heaven, or you're going to be separated from God in the afterlife, that's hell. In fact, Paul talks about hell being separation from God. Now you say, well, how could that be so bad? Everybody, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, here on earth gets some of the common grace of God. What does that mean? That everybody experiences some of the goodness of God. His rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? So everyone experiences love, relationships, a future, a hope, these kind of things, whether you're a Christian or not. Well, I want you to imagine a place where there is no love, where there are no relationships, where there is no future, where there is no hope. There's just stone cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. <laughs> it's been that way for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, that is hell. You're separated from the ultimate source of goodness, righteousness, and justice by your own choice. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, at the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So why doesn't God save everybody? Because even God can't force somebody to love him. He gives them enough evidence to let him know he's there, but he gives them enough freedom to go the direction they want. In fact, can I just ask one question? Please. I want to ask one question of the audience here. Um, here's a question that I ask every audience now just to see where people are intellectually and volitionally on this issue. I want you to think, if you're a Christian in here, this is just for Christians. If you're not a Christian, thanks for coming. Not a question for you, though. 
Christians. I want everyone in here to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. Everyone got somebody? Friend, relative? Everyone got somebody? Okay, here's my question. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know that Christianity is true. They're, they're open to it. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to the Christian message? How many people say the person I'm thinking of right now is on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know the truth. Crickets. How many people in here say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? Everybody else. I was just last week in Nashville with Robbie Zacharias. Wherever Robbie shows up, you know, thousands of people shows up. There was like 1,200 people there. And I asked that same question. Nobody raised their hand to say, oh, yeah, the person I'm thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth. See, people are not on a truth quest. Most people are not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of stupid, sinful things, but over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in here who's over 40 knows it because most of us have tried it, right? <laughs> now, that didn't work out, right? So sometimes it has nothing to do with evidence. It has to do with the heart. Yeah. Someone put it this way. The, 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 the distance between heaven and hell is 18 inches from the head to the heart. You may intellectually know it's true, but you don't want to trust in it. Why? Because you don't want there to be a God. You want to be God. You want to do your own thing. Mm. Hey, half the time I do too, don't you, Christians? Mm. It's inconvenient to be a Christian sometimes. Yes, an inconvenient truth. Mm -hmm. So uh, thinking about that then. Uh, sorry, that was a bad pun. I just had to sneak that in. I'm here comes sorry. Al Gore with the slides. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. So I was thinking my, one of my favorite authors, uh, a guy named Dallas Willard, puts it this way. He says that uh, God, because of God's grace, he'll certainly let in absolutely as many people as can possibly stand to be with him in heaven. That's right. Stand to be with him. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Frank, so getting, getting on that then, um, we're, you know, we're, we're the kind of church that wants to uh, respect people and treat people with dignity, and, mm -hmm. and yet we feel that conundrum. I, it, either 2 plus 2 equals 4 or, or it equals 3. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we don't want to be mean about that, we don't, but, but we kind of want to be able to say, you know, we think it equals... For, and we hope that you can come and see kind of the reasons for why we believe that. Um, we don't want to, we want to be that, those kinds of people who speak the truth in love, mm -hmm. to quote Jesus. Mm. How do you do that in your line of work? We talked about some questions that you use in conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of questions that you need to ask. I think asking questions is more important than making statements. And this is going to happen Thursday over dinner. Okay, because everyone in here is probably going to have dinner with somebody who doesn't share your worldview. Whether you're an atheist here or a Christian here, you're going to be sharing dinner probably with somebody who doesn't agree with you on everything, right? So whether you're an atheist or Christian here, it doesn't matter. You can ask these questions of anybody, right? So one question I think you need to ask somebody, especially if, if, if over dinner this Thursday, and, and you can use these questions anytime, obviously, is if you're asked a question about a, a controversial issue, and... You we're told never to talk about religion or politics, right? That's what you're told. Think about this. About the only thing worth talking about is religion and politics. Why? What does politics deal with? How we live here, and then religion is how we're going to live in the afterlife if there is one. I mean, what could be more important than that? But anyway, if somebody says something that you're, you're not, or they ask you a question about a controversial issue, you would ask them a question back, and here's the question. Do you consider yourself a tolerant person? Why do you want to ask that question? Well, typically people are going to say, well, of course I'm tolerant. Then you can say, well, great, because if I express an opinion different from yours, then you'll tolerate it. Right? In other words, you've just defanged them. 
Okay, because if they get all mad at you after saying they're tolerant, then you can say, hey, what happened to inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, right? <laughs> the only thing you can tolerate, by the way, are things you disagree with. You can't tolerate things you agree with. You already agree with them. Hmm. You can only, you can only uh, tolerate things you don't agree with. So ask that question first. It clears the decks of any hostility. Then there are three questions in a row that you want to ask people who, if they make statements, um, you don't need, if they make a statement that you think's wrong, don't jump into a refutation. Ask them to support what they say. It's not your job to refute what they say. It's their job to support what they say. So I would ask, if they say something, let's just say, oh, I can't trust the Bible because it's been changed throughout the centuries. Just an example. Your first question ought to be, what do you mean by that? What do you mean it's been changed throughout the centuries? Right? Chances are they don't even know why they've said it. Why? Because they just heard a slogan. They can't explain the slogan. They might say, oh, it's been translated and mistranslated and, you know... And then you, your next question, after you ask, what do you mean by that, is, how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what evidence do you have for this position? And if you want to customize it for that particular question, you could say, how did you come to that conclusion? Have you investigated the manuscript evidence for yourself? How many people are going to go, you know, just last night I was up reading a book about the Byzantine <laughs> line of manuscripts. No, nobody's going to say that. Why? Because here's what really happened. They heard a slogan that they like. And they've got this slogan now, but they can't intellectually justify it. So as soon as you ask for evidence for their position, they're out of intellectual justification for that evidence. So you can just sit back and not say anything except to ask questions. The third question, after you ask, what do you mean by that, and how did you come to that conclusion, is, have you ever considered, and then you fill in the blank, have you ever considered the Bible has not been changed throughout the centuries because it's not translated from one language into another? We take the earliest Greek manuscripts we have, we compare them, we reconstruct the original, and then we translate it directly into English. Even the great skeptic Bart Ehrman, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, agrees with this, that we know what the original New Testament documents say. So it's a nice way of you providing evidence back. Now, by the way, these three questions, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? Are all in the app, by the way, the cross-examined app, downloaded at the app store, two words, cross-examined. But also, these are questions you can use for any issue, like parents. You ought to use this with your kids, right? If you get a phone call one night from your son who says, hey, Dad, I'm not going to be home by 11 like you wanted me to be, to be. Your first question ought to be, what do you mean by that? <laughs> your second question should be, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> your third question should be, or your third statement should be, have you ever considered that if you're not home by 11, you're, you're going to be grounded for two weeks? Right? Be right home, Dad. Right? <laughs> now, by the way, by the way, husbands, 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 never ever, ever use these questions with your wives. Because if she calls you an idiot, don't say, what do you mean by that? Right? How'd you come to that conclusion? She's going to have a list 25 years long. And you are toast. So ask those questions. The last question, by the way, again, all these questions are in the cross-examined app. The last question that I use, especially for non-Christians, is this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at the microphone on a college campus in front of hundreds of people. You ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they say, no! No? How is that a reasonable answer? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. As I said earlier, they don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. And they'll admit that. So if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? It clears the decks of all the volitional objections. Remember I asked you earlier, how many are apathetic or hostile? Those people. Ask them that question. 
They're not, they're not looking for the truth. They want to just do their own thing. So those are some of the questions that I would ask. Love it. Um, okay, we're, we're nearing the end, so I've got to land the plane. I wish we could just talk for another hour. But let me, let me give you a question that uh, we did not get to in the okay. last service, yeah. but I had multiple people come up to me. So you all were smart to sleep in. This seems to be the pressing question. Um, again, we, we understand God to be loving. Uh-huh. We understand his desire to, is to save all. Uh, Jesus gave his own life to accomplish that. What about people who never hear that message? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. This is also answered in the app, so there's more detail there. But first thing, notice it's a moral claim, right? It's not saying it can't be true. What it's saying is that seems to be immoral, that God would allow people to maybe perish without even hearing about them, okay? So it's a moral claim. But secondly, I would say that, first of all, there's nobody out there that's never heard Everybody knows there's a God. Many people haven't heard of Jesus, but everybody knows there's a God. Why? Creation and conscience. Everyone knows if there's a creation, there must be a creator. Everyone knows that if there's a moral law written on your hearts, there must be a moral law giver. So we know there's a being that created the universe and is a moral being. And that's called natural revelation, by the way. That's how we know God. We don't know God directly. We don't see him. He's not a material being. We know him by his effects. So we go from effect to cause, creation to creator. We go from moral law to moral law giver. So we know there's got to be a creator. And the Bible indicates that if you take a step toward the light you get from creation, God will give you more evidence so you can be saved. But if you turn away from the light already given to you, more light isn't going to help you because you're not even interested in the light you have now. Now, some people will say, well, obviously the people in the Old Testament were saved without knowing Jesus. That's true. And is it possible God could save people without knowing Jesus today? Sure, it's possible. The Bible doesn't say a whole bunch about it. But it does appear that you need to know the name now since Jesus has come. And you say, well, a lot of people haven't ever heard the name, so what about them? If you read Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul's on Mars Hill. He's talking to Athenians. He's talking to unbelievers. And he gets to the point, it's Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where he says that God has so prearranged events that people will come to know him or come to seek him and some may know him. In other words, God has pre-ordered events so that the people who do need to hear the gospel will hear it. it seems, he seems to be saying, well, first of all, let me put it this way. We know a lot of people hear the gospel and don't believe it, right? It could be that people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway, right? If God has so pre-arranged events so that people live in the places they need to live so that they can hear the gospel, right? That's just possible, that Paul seems to be indicating that. At, at the end of the day, I want you to consider two things. First of all, since God is just, nobody's ever going to go to heaven who should go to hell and vice versa. Right? If God wants all to be saved, and he does, as you mentioned earlier, then the people who can be saved will be saved. Right? So we rest in the justice of God. This, again, is a moral question, and God is not going to be immoral. He's the standard of morality. But let me also say this. We're absolutely certain how people are saved. So what do we do? We risk all to get people the gospel. That's Mm. what we do. Mm. We get them the gospel. C.S. Lewis famously said that if you're concerned about this issue, then what you ought to do is you ought to become a Christian and add to God's body, to Christ's body, to win more people to Christ. He said it. cutting off a man's fingers would be an odd way of getting him to do more work, right? If you're concerned about this, don't cut yourself off from the body. Join the body so you can go... And bring more people to Christ. So what about those that have never heard at the end of the day? 
God is just, and nobody's going to, um, if they could be saved, he'll, he'll get them saved. Mm. But we have to do what we know to do, and that is to preach the gospel to everyone that we can. Good. Frank, last question for you. I want to make it personal. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe just uh, 30 seconds or so on this. How, when, when, did that, when did that become your reality when you decide this is truth i'm putting my faith and trust in well actually ironically it was from this very verse we've been talking about john 14 6 i had a friend who when i asked him how could jesus be the only way it seems narrow he quoted this verse to me and that very day in sacramento california in 1985 when we were going through training for the navy i was a navigator in the navy um, we went to a church. We had, didn't even know where it was. We just heard the name. We didn't know what even time the service started. We got to the service late. We sat down, and two minutes into the service, the guy goes, and then Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I didn't have all my questions answered that day, but I said, out of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, they're talking about this verse that day? So my friend who was with me said, you need Josh McDowell books. You need evidence demands a verdict and more than a carpenter. And so I read those books and ultimately became a Christian. I went from belief that to belief in. Look, even the demons believe that God exists. That's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called James, thank you. He said, even the demons intellectually know that Christianity is true, but they don't trust in Christ. So you have to go from belief that to belief in. So I got all the belief that I could, and then I said, this stuff's really true. I'm going to put my trust in Christ. Mm. And then later I wrote some books on that. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist stealing from God. And by the way, all the proceeds from the sale of the books today that are on the book table will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay. <laughs> Just so you know. All right. In fact, we have a DVD here called, Oh, Why Didn't I Say That? This... This has some of the questions we've been talking about today. It's not the exact presentation, but it has some of the questions we've been talking about today. So I came to faith through evidence, and that's why I got into this, because awesome. I think the evidence is very strong that Christianity is true, and we need to tell as many people about it. Yeah. Can you guys feel his passion for this? Do you feel his conviction? Uh, I, I just so admire that, Frank, uh, and we appreciate the scholarship that you've put, the, the work you've done on the evidence. Uh, Appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, we're a church that wants wants to be able to stand on that, the truth of the gospel in Jesus that we read in the authoritative scriptures, and that's you've helped us see that even more clearly today. Can we thank Frank for being All here right, with absolutely. us? Absolutely, thanks, brother. Let, let me say just a word, if I may, uh, to, uh, especially to those in the room who are skeptics or spiritual explorers. Uh, you know, this is not a line-in-the-sand moment for us as a church. Uh, we have never said, nor will we ever say, you have to believe this to be a part of this church. Uh, we are, just like Jesus, a community where people can come and inquire and ask questions. That's the kind of community we are. And I hope that today, uh, if there's been any sense of uh, arrogance or overreaching, that you would forgive that. That's not our intent. Our intent is to, as humbly as we can, portray the truth as we see Jesus claiming it. I, I want to end with a story. That very same Thomas. Remember the Thomas we started with who asked the question, how can we know the way? Probably my all-time favorite post-Easter story in the Bible is the story of Thomas. Uh, Thomas had heard about the empty tomb. Thomas had seen the resurrected Jesus, uh, but he still had questions. That, that wasn't enough for Thomas. And some of you will know this story, but one night 
Jesus appears before the, the guys and Thomas is there. And Thomas says, Jesus, I, I, I want to I believe, but I, I, I'm just not sure yet. I, I still got questions. And Jesus did the most unthinkable thing to me. He, he stretched out his hands, revealing the holes, the scars from the nails from the cross. And he said, Thomas, come and touch these wounds. And Thomas came and he, the Bible says he put his finger in the wounds in Jesus. And at that moment, John tells us, Thomas believed. Thomas said, I, I've seen enough. Uh, the, the evidence is so, it's such that I just can no longer hold out. Jesus, I'm going to trust and follow you. And that's really my hope for you today. That as we've heard this evidence again, uh, just so, uh, I love the clarity with which Frank speaks and the conviction, the passion. As we've heard these, that you might consider if, if Jesus wouldn't simply be the way, but if you would say today, Jesus, I want you to be my way. I want to trust. I want to follow you. And we're going to sing this last song. I'm not going to make you do anything. Stand up, raise your hand, come forward. None of that kind of stuff. But if you want to commit to that today, while we sing this last song, I invite you just to tell God that. God, I want you to be my way to the Father, Jesus. Would you help me to trust you and follow you? Christians, as we take this, as we share, can we share with humility? with love, with kindness, even as we do nothing but point to Jesus. That's my hope. That's my hope for us as a church. Can we stand? Let's sing one last song. Uh, the ushers are going to come. Nathan, band, would you lead us?